0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Kids Under Construction. I'm Donna Tatro. Today we're focusing on the helpers during COVID-19. Look for the helpers. You know the timeless quote from the late Fred Rogers. His mother reminded him to find these people in times of tragedy and crisis. You can always find people who are helping. Today we want to introduce you to three helpers who are working around the clock to help our children children who are most at risk and vulnerable. First, I want to introduce two helpers to the podcast. Marla Knoll is a pediatric clinical social worker at UCLA, and Natalie Hill is the president and executive director of the Hold You Foundation. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you for having
1: us. Thank you, Donna.
0: So Natalie, I want to start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about Hold you and how Hold You came into being? Where did this come from?
2: Well, you was founded about five years ago. In 2015, we gave our first assistance in May 2016. you was founded uh, because I was a sick kid and I recognized as a sick teenager that many kids were hospitalized alone and I didn't understand that at the time. As an adult, I was working for a corporate foundation and giving out funds to many nonprofits when a teenage cousin of mine was in a very bad car accident. And I began to look for nonprofits because I was in that field that would help her. And I realized there was a huge void in nonprofits that give financial support to families, which I knew was so critical to my family members. And I realized, of course, that that's why many of these kids were hospitalized alone uh, back when I was in the hospital. So I saw the void and just started to
0: uh, start Hold You and start making a difference that way. And so then that's when Hold You kind of came into you as an inspiration to help others. Who are you helping right now with Hold You? prior to COVID-19, what did that look like?
2: Well, prior to COVID-19, it, 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 it looked a lot like it does now, only more. Now I think we're in this position where everyone's experiencing financial hardship. They've had a job loss. This is what's normal for families with children with life-threatening illness. Many of them experience a huge financial loss in order to care for their children. One parent has to quit a job. They're cutting back on hours to be necessary appointments. Uh, They lose a job because they can't get to it. So they're already experiencing financial hardship. And that's what we were helping with prior to COVID. So we have a lot of families who are uh, suffering a great deal of financial hardship and who end up falling below the federal
0: poverty line, even if they weren't before, because of their child's illness. So the children that you're helping and the families that you're helping, what are the illnesses?
2: Well, i I'll hold you took on a big, a, a big weight or a big goal, I would say. Not a weight, but a, a, a big, a bold inspiration in that we decided to help all children with life-threatening illnesses. So whereas some organizations might be geared towards cancer or transplants or something, we just went on and said, we're gonna help all children. So we are helping children with uh, pediatric cancers. We're helping children with transplants. We're helping children with genetic disorders. We've helped families with children who are in the NICU. We really
0: don't limit the disease. So we are helping all families. And so then COVID-19 happened and you're helping all of these children. And now you're seeing even more job loss, even more anxiety and need. Tell us a little bit more about what this need is now.
2: Well, now, now we're seeing families with no income. So whereas you had a family with a little bit of income, we're seeing families with no income. We've seen a dramatic rise and the amount of families needing food and gas. So I think that families are, are suffering greatly in the COVID pandemic uh, without any resources. And, and, and many of the resources that we see might be available. I know I have a family member who applied for unemployment four weeks ago and has still not received it. So. What we do
0: is we bring immediate assistance. That's really amazing work. Now, Natalie, I know that you and Marla work in conjunction. And Marla, you are there on the front lines working with these families. What does this look like for you right now with COVID-19? You're not able to actually see these people in person anymore. Talk about what you're doing, how it's changed for you.
1: Yeah, thanks for asking about that, because I think that's a... um Critical piece. I am fortunate in the fact that I know a lot of my families and the kids that we treat over a long period of time. So treatments for pediatric cancer tend to be more on the terms of year, a year or longer. Um, so I have that fortunate um, situation where I have a long-standing relationship with families. Um, so being able to still speak to them, still support them by phone or by video chat has worked quite well over the past month that we've been in in, um, more isolation. Um, Children with cancer um, in general, uh, families are hesitant to have them in public and around a lot of people. So the sensitivity to contagion, to the need to protect immunosuppressed people from viral situations and illness um, is sort of commonplace with my families. And that's been Somewhat of an adaptive tool for them. Um, so it is not uncommon for me in my regular work prior to COVID to get a telephone call from a stressed family saying, This is what's going on. Any advice? How can you help me? Where should I turn? Um, and that's sort of continuing in that as we go on. It is a little bit more cumbersome. I do love to be able to see people in person. I feel very close to my families and hugs and a uh, handshake and a um, a friendly, warm pat on the arm, those things we can't do right now. And so we have to replace them with the compassion we can give um, by listening, by offering help. Um, And so that's the adjustment that we're all making at this time.
0: Talk a little bit about that need for more compassion. I mean, you are what is compassion. Your job title is that, but... Talk a little bit about how you're managing this through that use of compassion and empathy and, and, and these families, what they're going through. This is an added anxiety beyond what most of us really can imagine.
1: Yeah, I think they're sharing in the anxieties that we're all having. I think for the mother of a child with cancer, going to the market is a little bit more stressful than it is for me um, because they know they could bring back something. We all know we could bring back something, but they have a little more of a um, urgency to that need to protect the child at home. Um, I think that compassion at this point is about listening and I think that's really what it always has been about. I think the need to really be able to understand and be available to pick up the phone and say to them, I'm here, I'm listening, I know how stressful this is, has been um, a tool that we've used for a long time and now we're just using with a little more urgency. Um, I have had families um, both reach out to me directly and other families who when I call them um, or reach out to them, they've been able to open up and talk about what they're afraid of I think the additional thing with medically ill children is that they have to come to the hospital. Um, All the rest of us are sort of avoiding these, these environments, but our children have to come to get their treatment, have to keep on their scheduled treatment, getting scans and getting IV therapies and blood draws and all those things that require close contact, first of all, and second of all, need to be done at the hospital setting. So that's something they can't avoid, and we talk about the risk value of going in and and continuing on their course of treatment. Um, our families are incredible. I I wish I could say that um that that I provide any kind more support than what they give back. They are um, all of our parents have been absolutely incredible at working hard to protect their children and get them treated and get them back to health and teach them at home and all of the things that all the other parents in the world now are faced with. They've been doing that for years. And so they're our heroes, really.
0: They they really are. I mean, is is there a scenario that you've been in since COVID-19 where you said to a family, you probably shouldn't go into the hospital today?
1: So because I work on a very close medical team, I'm not, I don't give the medical part uh, advice to families. I I try very carefully to leave that to our physicians. I have on multiple occasions um, conferenced in either one of our nurse practitioners or one of our physicians and have them speak directly to um, the parent um, and give the medical advice. But I do feel that it's really important for someone who understands the medical condition of the child, the immunosuppression and at what level it's at to be the ones to be giving that advice. So yeah, it, that, that communication, um, that telehealth visit or telephone call with a, with a medical staff is, is very, very important and it's happening frequently.
0: So Natalie, tell me about the families that you're helping now. How many are you aiding at this point?
2: Yeah, we've helped about 10 families in the last few days um we've had requests for i've had several social workers also reach out that requests are coming so it's a little bit overwhelming in terms of the number we're getting and we can't always give the i mean marla knows she'll say i understand if you can't give the full amount but uh, i'd like to always see what the full amount is that there that that is the need that um, there is a family now that I receive news about who is a teenage boy with cancer. And his parents have both been recently hospitalized with COVID-19. Oh. So he is home caring for his younger teen brothers while his parents are both hospitalized. So the, the, the level, the, the unthinkable situations are actually happening. There's several stories like that but that I just think goes right to the heart. And um, you know, we at Hold You just wanna do everything we can for every family. And um,
0: I, I can't imagine that situation. That is an unimaginable situation. And to see you, I know that on this podcast, people won't be able to see you, but I see the sadness and the angst on your face. Yeah. dealing with these families? Um,
2: if, if ever there was a time for a giant donation, <laughs> if, if it is now, I mean, to, to not be able to, to not have the funds to, to, to help in full with some of these situations is hard. So we're really working hard on our end to raise the funds right now to, to bring these directly to families. Um, and that's what happens. We can turn it
0: around in 24 hours. Well, and that's what's amazing is the turnaround that you're talking about.
2: Yep. Well, we trust our partnerships with our hospitals and with our social workers. And they vet and send us the families that are in the greatest
0: need. So that that really helps out a lot. And Marla, you were saying that the the boy may be showing some symptoms as well now of COVID.
1: Yeah, that's what he's telling us. Yeah. And I think the I think a really important Point to make here is um, I turn to foundations like Hold You to help these families, not because the check that Natalie's able to send is going to fix everything. Um, But these families have so many stressors in their lives that when one hole is plugged, when one rent check is paid, or one grocery cart arrives, that helps them buy groceries for this week, that family knows that people out there care about what's going on with them. That family gets the message from Hold You and from other small foundations and big foundations that they are real people that are taking money from their pockets to help them in this time. And I think that is such a critical message of gratitude and, and understanding that those checks do make a difference. They are more than a check um and the these families continually um benefit from just knowing that there's people out there who care yeah
0: i love hearing that explanation because i do think that when people send money they aren't able to really connect that. So for you to be able to kind of connect the dots on that and to say, no, specifically, this is going to rent. Specifically, this is going to heating. This is going to food for the week is meaningful for people to hear. I have a question for you. You must have a very difficult time selecting the families that you then pass on to hold you. Or to other nonprofits, how do you come up with making those decisions?
1: Well, Donna, those are hard decisions. Um, fortunately, there um, we are fortunate that Natalie helps many of our families um, with her foundation, and there are other foundations that we get help from. Also, um, I don't. I I send applications regularly. I get requests regularly. I don't feel that I um, make those choices. I reach out, and sometimes people say, "Look, the fundraiser hasn't happened yet, or we're down on our on our funds because so much, so many people need so much." And sometimes I get a no answer, but I keep trying, um, and we do the best we can. I think families very often. I'm always surprised by them, and that sometimes that one time help gives them enough relief and enough confidence that they get back on track. Um, and so I count on that as well. It's difficult. It's difficult to hear the stories. Um, I wish none of them were going through this. I wish our government programs were big enough and fast enough um, and helpful enough to not make these things necessary. But there's just too many holes in those programs and too little funding that we end up needing people like Holju. Um, to help to help fill the gap, um, we try to get them on all their benefit programs, but i'm I'm telling you, just like we 're seeing now with the unemployment benefits, often they're just not enough.
0: Do you think moving forward, it may change the way benefits are given or funding is made? I mean that would have to be a huge overhaul, but is there something to be learned here? I, I've seen some, some research that's
2: coming out about, on my end, when I'm seeking funds, a lot of the big foundations want me to provide them with, and I have spoken with Marlo about this, where they want me to provide them with a theory of, cha- a, a theory of change of how, the, how what we're doing is going to change things. It's systemic. I've talked to Marlo about this. How is it going to change poverty and injustice? It's not. But but I think a lot of people are realizing cash in the pockets of families is what people actually need. So what we've been doing for all these years now is coming to light as something that really is beneficial and that you can trust people with a low income. They're actually going to use the money for their rent, for their food. They're not going to use it on something. People want to control it as if it's going to be used on something. That people want it for their basic needs. That's what their that's what their insecurity is. So, I'm hoping it does change.
1: I, I saw an amazing bumper sticker on a walk the other day that said, "Goodness is contagious." Um, I, I kind of hope that change happens. Um, I have heard stories over the past month of people doing extraordinary things for each other. I think. Larger scale governmental change is slow, and I don't put a lot of faith in it, but I put a ton of my faith in um, the help that comes person to person, the goodness that's out there, um, and the goodness I've seen even in the past month where people are helping other people um, get through crisis. Um, So I think if there's change, it's going to be all of us learning the lesson of the need to be there for each other. Um, both friends, even the amount of people reaching out to each other, people they haven't talked to in a while, reaching out, how are you, what's going on? I think that kind of change will come from this for sure. I think foundations like Hold You are making an incredible impact at a time that eventually I have to believe that will pay itself forward.
0: Natalie, is there anything that you want to add to this conversation that you might want to tell to our listeners that might grab their attention to say, yeah, I'm going to help out here. I can do this. Well, I mean, back to
2: what Marla's point about, you know, the fact that this does give physical relief for for food insecurity and energy and housing, uh, that does make an immediate impact. I agree that that message of you're not alone is so valuable. It provides a big emotional relief to know that you're not alone, that you you are involved in a community that cares. So I would say to anyone listening who wants to be a part of that community that cares, reach out, get involved. We're doing a fundraiser on June 14th. We've started to do it now. We're having, we normally do a cycling, spin cycling fundraiser. And since we can't do that, we're calling it the June Jam. And we're we're having people pick their favorite exercise jam. And start a fundraising page and, and come together on June 14th to do an exercise, an exercise challenge for our families. So uh, we've gotten rolling with that and we're, we're hoping to raise big money to support our families by coming together with that event.
0: That sounds so great. And Marla, I wanted to ask you one question about the at-risk children who are being abused, and who you are working with as well, and who really have no relief now that they're not in school Um, and having teachers report this. Talk about this a little bit.
1: Yeah, Donna, unfortunately it's uh, something that we are, many of us are very concerned about. I do work with the uh, suspected child abuse and neglect team at UCLA and have for many years. Um, And it's been a constant conversation among the professionals on the team um, about the risk that um, medically fragile, but also all of our children, um, could potentially be at um, with this with the um, quarantine or the stay-at-home orders. Um, the fear that uh, professional teachers and physicians are not seeing kids face to face leaves. Those kids are a little bit more vulnerable. The biggest reporters of um, of abuse uh, to, to children protective services um, are teachers, actually, and they are the ones that notice changes in the kids that they see every day. Um, that those those face to face contacts are lost during this time. Um, the frustrations of all of the. Psychosocial problems that are happening um, to our families, loss of job, um, quarantine in close quarters, fear of what's going to happen in the future, all raises stress. So yes, I think that our kids are at more risk. Um, Our hope is that it will not um, come. We will not hear horrible stories, um, but we are trying our best to. Especially in the medical field, doing things like telehealth visits um, where we actually see the children, um, training new doctors and the existing doctors, training all of our physicians to look a little harder, um, ask a few more questions, um, require an in person visit when there is concern of something going on, but going that extra step to be aware of what these kids could be facing at home. I hope. It doesn't cause for an increase in child abuse and neglect, um, but we need to be vigilant and keep uh, doing the training of the professionals so that if it is happening, we um, react.
0: Well, I just, I want to thank you both so much for shedding such a bright light on all the concerns that so many people are going through children, families, just educating all of us about the needs um, out there. Is there anything that you want to leave us with, either one of you?
1: I have to say that I have um, been overwhelmed with the positivity that exists underneath all of this. The organizations that have contacted me, like You, Natalie reached out to me at week one of the pandemic and said, we're still here to help your children. I've had families email me and say, we hope you're okay, and we're doing fine. Um, it, there's incredible human strength out there, and I am just hoping that that carries us through. But it is incredibly important that we all do our part to reach out to people, um, to each other, to people we know, and to help as much as we can with organizations to have the support available for our families.
0: Thank you so much, Marla. Natalie, what about you? And where could people find you to help hold you? Yeah, I'm grateful. I want
2: to say I'm grateful for the work of the social workers and incredibly uh, in awe of the families and their resilience and their fight for their children and what they're going through. I want to help every one of them and and do that in a big way. To find us, just go to www.holdyou.org you can make a donation there or you can join our June Jam fundraiser. I know a lot of people out there are going to be moving that day anyway, doing some exercise. So I would say, why not give your exercise a little more meaning on that one day on June 14th and come do some exercise for the children that we're helping for the families, Um, to let them know they're not alone and they're a part of a community that cares. So I'm grateful for this opportunity and, um, Grateful
0: for everyone on the front lines right now. Thank you so much, Natalie and Marla. It was such a good conversation and I really appreciate all you're doing for children, families, and our community. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you, you, Donna. Donna. I wanna introduce you to Nancy Stiles. She is the Executive Director of STARS. Nancy, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Donna. So Nancy, tell us about STARS. Just give us the uh, lowdown on STARS. Sure.
3: Well, STARS is a nonprofit organization in Pasadena uh, that's supporting young people. Our goal is to walk alongside and affirm, equip, and embolden young people to pursue a life of purpose, service, and meaning. And pre-COVID, our main program areas are after-school programming for grades K through 12. Uh, We do one-on-one mentoring, college student support, and summer enrichment. And we're doing that for students that are all low-income within the footprint of the Pasadena Unified School District.
0: How many kids are you serving and um, daily, how many kids are you mentoring? Well, we serve about 280 kids annually in all our different program spaces.
3: Um, and just on a, on a daily basis in our after-school and mentoring program, that number is more about 180.
0: And, and so how do kids qualify for the STARS program? Well, we've been around for a while.
3: Uh, we started in 2001. So a lot of the ways that students come to us is through word of mouth in the neighborhood where we serve. Uh, and then we also reach out to principals at our local schools and they may have students that they refer to us that they think can benefit from our program.
0: And so the program, as it was, was helping all of these students and then COVID nineteen happened, and you had to see a shift. What are you doing now with these students and families?
3: Well, as soon as we realized we had to close our doors uh, for in-person programming, we took the time to make sure we surveyed all our families to find out what their greatest needs were. And so there was some some hope for um some, to, to continue the virtual relationships that. Uh, they had with volunteers and mentors so we've been working to connect students with their tutors and mentors via zoom or google meets or via facetime or even just a phone call uh, so we're working on that still and then it became really clear that uh, our, our families were facing some food insecurity uh, about 85 percent of the parents in our program have lost their jobs or are facing reduced hours due to covid and so uh, we've been gathering donations and then distributing them through one of our after-school program sites. And so when we, we two weeks ago, we started to do a full grocery distribution. So uh, our staff puts together a, a meal plan for the week, and then we work with a local catering company to order that food in bulk. And then volunteers in our building break that down into
0: family-size
3: portions, and our families come by the, the building and pick that up.
0: And so, these families are—are are these um, essential workers that have lost their jobs? Can you kind of give us a little bit of a landscape of what these families look like?
3: Most of the families are in the service industry, so they're working in restaurants or they're cleaning homes, uh, things like things like that. And that's why they're reduced—they're they're facing job loss, reduced hours.
0: Are you feeling a lot of anxiety from these parents and kids? What are you seeing beyond the food insecurity that is very difficult for this really vulnerable population? Yeah, you know, Donna, it's actually really interesting
3: because I see an incredible resilience in the families that we work with. So as much as they're concerned about making sure that they can still feed their families, there's also this deep gratitude uh, that they're safe and that they have all this time together. Our families work really hard, so to be off work and home with their kids uh, they actually see as a blessing as well. Uh, and now they're so grateful that we're able to get high quality food for them uh, and that they can then cook at home. Um, so I'm watching actually this incredible um, optimism and uh, you know they're handling the crisis pretty well.
0: Are the children, um, is there this digital divide that's really difficult for them to continue their learning? Of course, what's most important really is for them to get food in their stomachs, number one, the basic needs. But then beyond that, because you're able to get them this, is there this huge digital divide that is really going to push them back?
3: Yes, I'm sure you're hearing about it all over LA County, um, but we are definitely seeing it here in Pasadena. So our school district does a one-to-one, every student has a Chromebook um, program. So all of our students should have the equipment they need in the home. Uh, The problem is some of those machines aren't working. And so we've had to step in uh, with some of our staff uh, to help with the technology, make sure that they have a working working Chromebook. And then, of course, a lot of our families didn't have home Wi-Fi before this all happened. So... There are opportunities through the school district for that to happen, uh, but it's been, it's been slow and uh, we've had to really help our families get up and running on the technology. Um, and then on the flip side, we have older volunteers. So sometimes helping our older volunteers access the technology so that they can talk to these young students um, has been an issue as well.
0: Wow, that seems like that could be challenging. What about, is there um, a language barrier here?
3: Definitely. Yes, most of our families are Spanish-speaking and so that's been an issue for them to connect with the school sites. Um, So some teachers are bilingual and are able to communicate with the families and other ones aren't and that has been another place that some of our bilingual staff members have have helped our parents connect with the schools. Um, The other piece, the the students that we're the most concerned about and have um, put some energy around in terms of a reading task force, is our emerging readers so the second and third graders that are still in that stage of of learning to read so how are you trying to combat that what are you doing so our reading task force is is uh has spent time in our library at our after school program site and is pulling the appropriate book titles for each student and that's in that um that's in that range second and third grade and now since our families are coming to pick up food at our location we're putting a special reading care package together for each student of some some titles that are right at their reading level and sending those home with those students. And then the goal is, uh, starting this next week, we'll see how it works, <laughs> to have a volunteer <laughs> connect with them over FaceTime or Zoom and be able to actually read that book together.
0: That's awesome. I really love that. I mean, and that is getting back to the basics. I mean, learning is learning is learning. And when you're reading, you're learning. And if you're learning to read, it's all happening. So it sounds like you're really doing some individualized learning with these kids. That's the goal. And then the other goal is we're just going to continue it through the summer months. Since
3: summer is often a time where we see that summer learning loss, uh, especially now during COVID, If however long this quarantine lasts, um, we're going to try to keep up that reading and then also add some other enrichment activities in um, for our students. Um, so we've brainstormed a bunch of them. Um, we often do a rocket class in one of our after-school programs, and so we're thinking we could send all the rocket materials home and have a, have a volunteer help them over Zoom, build that rocket, and then once we can all be back out in the world, we could launch those rockets together.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a really cool plan. Now you talk about the summer slide that we all kids go through, even if they haven't been impacted by, um, having to be at home. How do you think this is going to look for kids? It's almost as if they have a double summer slide with COVID. I I'm really concerned. And, uh, I'm not sure if you saw the latest
3: um, NPR article today, but they're really looking at um, a modified way that school's gonna come back even in the fall. Uh, So I think this is unprecedented and we're gonna see the long-term effects of this on kids learning.
0: So tell me a little bit about what you're feeling daily as you work with individual kids and families. What's your spirits like? Are you getting through this okay? I think every day is different, Donna. (laughs) So I,
3: I'm like, I mentioned before, it's one of the most encouraging parts is to see how strong our families are. Uh, One of my favorite stories so far from this whole experience was uh, one of my older mentors called me and said uh, she'd been mentoring her girls. She's three girls that she's in relationship with. She'd been mentoring them for about 12 years. So they're in college now and they have been getting supplies and delivering them to the mentor because she's in the risk group. Uh, And I thought what a beautiful full circle picture that here's these, here's these ladies that our mentor has poured into over 12 years and they're now taking care of her during this practice. So those are the stories that (laughs) keep encouraging me and and, and keep me going. Um, It's also every day I feel like presents a new challenge that we're trying to solve. Um, So all this food distribution, uh, we've been on a huge learning curve for that. And then all the technological issues um, to connect students and volunteers, we're constantly um, trying to troubleshoot that and learn how to best serve students. So even as we think about summer months and and what we'll be able to put into place, um, every day I feel like presents a new challenge right now.
0: Yeah, that's interesting that you talk about food distribution. I have a very tiny little nonprofit called Caring Counts. Mm -hmm. And we're actually trying to feed families at one particular school in LA Unified. And we've been able to feed about 55 to 100 families each Saturday for the last two Saturdays. But it is challenging. Do you have any tips for people who are just these little engine that could to distribute food. Because if you're having this learning curve here, what would you recommend to people? Well, you said at the beginning
3: that this was a uh, talking about the helpers. Well, we're reaching out to the helpers too. And so we're reaching out to experts. We've had a couple different chefs come over and walk our building and give us advice about how we're preparing and how we're storing the items. Um, We've had, amazing donor response. So there's things we've had to do to our building to make things food safe. So we've bought a bunch of commercial counters um, so that we can be preparing food We're vacuum packing things. Our big issue is still refrigeration. We don't quite have enough. Um, so we're working to put an additional commercial fridge into our buildings. Um, but it is really amazing how far your money goes when you're buying in bulk. So that's been really wonderful to see how, how, how much food we can provide Uh, and at a fairly low cost
0: per person. Um, Talk a little bit about what the new normal might look like for stars. I know that it's just such an unprecedented time that it's so difficult to really figure that out. You're just trying to kind of manage day to day at this point. But do you see things changing because of the way you're operating now, potentially? I absolutely do. Uh and one of them is we may stay in
3: the food distribution business for a while. Uh, you know, I hope that it's short term, but I would love to see uh it maybe transition to a food co-op model at some point where families are able to contribute and have have um some ownership about what items uh are coming in and, and, and have all of that um be continue to be something that we offer um as a program. I think our after-school programs are gonna look really different from here on out. Uh, and I think the key is relationship for everything we do. So how do we keep relationships strong with new procedures in place? That will be the, that will be the conversation that we're starting
0: to have um, in terms of how we reopen um, when, and if we can in the fall. What's interesting about this too, is I've been talking to a lot of different people and organizations about how the role of the parent may change due to this pandemic. And with your group of parents because they are both working parents, long hours, and now they're at home with their kids. Do you think that, you know, there's some, of course, it's a negative situation, but like you had mentioned before, there's a lot of positive angles here. And do you think your role may be in some kind of parent education um, with these families potentially? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been, a, it's been a, a
3: focus of ours
0: for a while to help equip our parents to
3: be advocates for their own kids in, at the school locations, and they're, and they're forced to take more ownership of the educational experience um, during this time, and so I think that's going to be an ongoing training that we will continue to equip, equip parents with so that they can uh, continue to advocate for their kids and, and, and help them with their educational learning.
0: Can you share anything with us that maybe I haven't asked you that you think is important for people to know?
3: I think that we are all struggling to some degree during this pandemic. We don't know what it's going to bring. We don't know how long we're going to be living like this. We don't know uh, how this is going to affect our families and our future. But I think a key thing to remember is that those that are vulnerable around us, those that face food insecurity, that those that don't have the technolo- technological tools to do the online learning that, uh, that is now a way of life for all of us, and those that are in close quarters, um, if we can come alongside and help others during this time with the resources we have.
0: Well, thank you so much for all of your work for children and these families. And it's been so nice to talk to you and to learn all about what you're doing at Stars. If people want to help you, (laughs) what can they do? Where can they go? Who should they contact? I love it. Thank you. Um, Our website is
3: gostars.org, G-O-S-T-A-R-S.org. And we update that regularly with uh, our newest list of needs, things we we are collecting to distribute to families. Um, You can also give and support the organization there. Or if you're in Pasadena or nearby, there's also a way to volunteer with us as well.
0: Well, thank you so much, Nancy. It was so great to talk to you. I really appreciate you and good luck with all that you're doing. Thank you, Donna. Now I want to leave you with something that is really important to remember. You don't have to help hundreds of people to be a helper. Changing one life for even one moment is being a helper. I tell my kids this not only to encourage them to be helpers in the world, but to give them the power to be helpers. And I'll leave you with this one amazing example. This is a letter that New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo shared at one of his press conferences. He received it from a man in his 70s who lives in Kansas. Quote, Dear Mr. Cuomo, I seriously doubt that you will ever read this letter as I know you are busy beyond belief with the disaster that has befallen our country. I am a retired farmer hunkered down in northeast Kansas with my wife who only has one lung and occasional problems with her remaining lung. She also has diabetes. We are in our 70s now and frankly I'm afraid for her. Enclosed Find a solitary N95 mask left over from my farming days. It has never been used. If you could, will you please give this mask to a nurse or doctor in your state? I have kept four masks for my immediate family. Please keep doing what you're doing so well. Sincerely, Dennis and Sherry, end quote. All I can say to that is wow helpers really are everywhere in this world thank you so much for listening everyone and please download and subscribe to kids under construction we will get through this together until next time